All right, my glasses are still down here, and I need those. All right, thank you. Getting old, old eyes. I realized I needed reading glasses a few years ago for the first time when uh, there was fraud on the church credit card, and and, uh, I got a text saying that I needed to to call in because I'm the authorized person to give instruction, and I said, okay, I'll take care of it, and I took the credit card out of my pocket, and I couldn't read the number right? It's the smallest print known to man, right, on the back of a credit card. So I kid you not, what I had to do, I had to take a picture of it with my phone of the number, and then I could, ex- I could zoom in, right? All the old people are laughing with me. Who, who's with me, right? Who's, have you ever had to do that before? Yeah, I know, see? And then I went to see Dr. Kearney, and now I've got reading glasses, and now I can see. So, hey, can we just, can, can we just say thank you to all the people that work in kids' ministry for a moment? Can we just say thank you to them? Most of them aren't in here because they're working with the kids down in workshop and care. Uh, all volunteer, everything with kids is done completely through volunteerism. It's just amazing. And so Vanessa had uh, coffee with uh, a, a mom, a new family in the church this week, and she was telling the story that their son, who's kindergarten age, he, they've been coming for about a month or so, every day he wakes up, he asks, as soon as he wakes up, he asks the question, is today church day? Is today church day, right? Isn't that great? Every day he wakes up because he wants to come. And then, and then the conversation quickly goes because he's in kindergarten and you get to go to workshop, which is the kind of the kids' church experience here that happens after the, after the worship experience here in the sanctuary, is that he, he, then the conversation gets to play, and next year I get, to, I get to go to the big kids' class, right? So he's got a vision for workshop. Kids, he's, he's just in kindergarten. He already has a vision for where he's going and what he's doing next. And I'll tell you why that is. is because of all the people that volunteer in those ministries. They do such an amazing job. It's not just childcare back there. They're really sowing and investing into the kids that call City Life Church their home. So if, if you're visiting with us or if you're new to the church, we just want to keep throwing this slide up at the beginning of all of our sermons in this. We've been in this series all year. It's the first time we've done a year-long series uh, just digging in and exploring all the many aspects of our discipleship model. Discipleship is a central part of who we are at City Life. We know that God cares about what we believe, but he also cares about what we do. It's, it's just to believe the right things, it's not enough. It's not if those beliefs have to then instruct the way that we live. And part of the way we live or how we teach people to live are through what we call 12 pathways, uh, which are at the middle of this discipleship model. And we're talking about two of those pathways tonight, and we've been talking about them for a few weeks. In Matthew 6, 19 to 21 is the famous text where Jesus commands us. He doesn't suggest it. He doesn't say, hey, I've got this idea that I think you should consider, but he gives us a command that we're supposed to to store up our treasures in heaven. And we've been using this text as a launch point to talk about two of our pathways, which are stewardship and generosity. Stewardship and generosity. Stewardship is being a good caretaker of all the things that God has entrusted to us. Generosity is the portion of those possessions that we're supposed to give to other people. And so several weeks ago, we worked through four heart questions. We did that over two weeks. We talked about, am I submitted? Am I cheerful? Am I expectant? And then the fourth one was, am I content? I found this gem. Listen, let me just share this with you. As I was uh, praying for Ellie here in Hebrews 13, as I continued uh, to read, I saw this. I was like, man, this one would have been a great one to share uh, in that question. Uh, So just as part of our review, it says, "Don't, don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. 
For God has said, I will never fail you and I I will never abandon you. And that's a quote from Deuteronomy 31. And then he shifts to a quote to Psalm 118. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? There's something about the power of contentment in our lives. And then we shifted from four heart questions and then we shifted into what we're calling four money questions. And the reason we started with the four heart questions is because there's a self-evidencing quality to those questions that they are spiritual in nature. And then what happens sometimes because of our religious bias, when we get into specific questions about money, we think we've shifted out of the spiritual and into the practical. But because there's so much teaching in the Bible about how to be a good steward and how to practically begin to walk in generosity, these are not practical questions. They're just as spiritual as the heart questions. So last week we did, am I providing for my family? And last week we also did, am I providing for my relationships? And tonight we're going to do, am I providing for my community? and am I providing for my church? It's interesting, I was thinking just today, it, 10 years ago, we've been here on the peninsula pastoring with City Life for 10 years. This is our kind of our decade milestone for, for us. It's been the most amazing journey. We're looking to all the decades uh, that are still ahead of us. And I remember the first year we were here and I was meeting with an older pastor who'd been ministering here for a long time, his whole life. And, and, and we were out for coffee and he was just encouraging me. He was asking me questions, how are things going? And, and, and then he said, he said, see, what are some of the things that, that are challenging you that maybe surprised you and have caught you off guard. And I said, well, I'll tell you, one of them is that, that when it comes time and, and throughout our years we're doing our sermon planning, when it's time to talk about giving, especially if we're talking about tithing, I said, I get a little self-conscious when I'm supposed to talk about that because I know that there are going to be visitors there who, and, and maybe they haven't been at church for years and, and their experience has been every time they show up right at a service, the pastor talks about giving. I said, it makes me nervous. And, and, the, and, and, and this guy, right, older, older guy, He paused, he kind of smiled, and he said, Fred, well, I'll tell you this. If that's their experience, that every time they show up to church, there's a message about giving, it sounds to me like God's trying to get through to them. Right? And I say, come on, that's so rich. So if you're here tonight and it bothers you that we're talking about giving, it's not a pulpit problem, it's a personal problem, and we're here to help. We're here to help. We're here to help. Oh, that was so good. Am I providing for my community? Am I providing for my community? So let's, let's, just, let's just be divisive for a minute. Can we do that? Let's be divisive. Who has Thanksgiving versus Christmas hangups? Anybody else? Yeah. Because in my neighborhood, somebody has all of their Christmas decorations up already. Right? And there is something inside of me. When I ride by it, I want to pull over and I want to just tear it all down. Is there, who has rules about when you can do Christmas in your house? What's your rule what, in your house? When do you guys do it? It's after Thanksgiving. After Thanksgiving. No yeah. Pre-Thanksgiving. No pre-Thanksgiving. No tree, right? No yard decorations. Who else has rules about you got to wait? Anybody? Who are my, we don't do Christmas till after Thanksgiving. Anybody else? Come on. Don't be ashamed. I see some hands. Right? We live in a city named after the captain of the ship that led the rescue mission to save Jamestown. Come on. I think every time a Christmas tree goes up before Thanksgiving, Christopher Newport, he goes to find Jesus in heaven. And he says, can we do something about that? And Jesus says, I can't help it, I'm popular. Right? He's asking the wrong person. Now, who here already has Christmas stuff up in your house? Come on, who else? Sabra, I know, unashamed. Now, who has them up, but you're not raising your hand because you're up there? <laughs> yeah, that's great. Oh, and now some, some more hands go up, right? 
Come on, we gotta respect the pilgrims. That's what we say. That's what we're teaching our family. We, we typically go the day, or the weekend after Thanksgiving. Sometimes the day after, but the weekend after, uh, we go get our tree. I, I, I remember it was back when we were in Mechanicsville. Probably it was like, I don't know, like 12 or 13 years ago. And, and it was, it wasn't even the week of Thanksgiving, right? It was like, she's like, stop, keep going. That's not in your notes. I know, that's why it's funny. So it, it might have even been the end of October. I don't know. Let's exaggerate. I came home from work. And we were that house in the neighborhood that had Christmas decorations all up. And the outside, people were walking their dogs and they were looking at our house like, who are these people, right? And I remember going inside, I was like, what, what happened? Vanessa was like, oh, I just got excited. I wanted to decorate it, right? And now be, being the good husband and I am, I, I, didn't, I did not say that we had to take them down. I just lived in shame for the next three months until Christmas, until Christmas got here. Now we have rules. Now we have rules. Can I just tell you, I'm just getting some things off my chest tonight. Can I just tell you too, one of the things that frustrates me about the holiday season are these television commercials. Come on, thank you, Warren. These, these television commercials where one spouse surprises their husband or wife with a $75,000 car. I'm like, who does that? What family has $75,000 of disposable income that you can commit without even talking to your spouse? I mean, I don't even know what that's about, right? I mean, if it was like a used car off of Craigslist, and right, and that's the commercial, I'd be like, I'm for that, I'm for that kind of surprise. But who has that kind of cash laying around? That's how divorces happen. I just spent our retirement for you for Christmas, right? It's not good. It's not good. But those kinds of commercials, we laugh at them, but those kinds of commercials send out a, a vibe in, in our society that unless you spend more than you should, you're not going to have fun in the holidays. People wreck their finances for years during holiday seasons. People get caught up into this, if I'm not keeping up with everybody else, if my kids aren't getting what their friends are getting, if I'm not in debt by the time I get to New Year's Eve and have to go on a 40-day fast praying that my taxes, all right, my refund is gonna get me out of trouble, it, it, it's, 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 it's not what these holiday seasons are supposed to be about. And what happens is if you get caught up into that where you begin to spend in ways that you're not supposed to spend, in the ways that you are supposed to spend, the money's not gonna be there for you. A huge part of having self-control during these holiday seasons is so that you're thinking about the year and the years to come, so that you're gonna have something set aside for your community. Listen to Proverbs 19, 17. It says, if you help the poor, you are lending to the Lord and he will repay you. It's powerful, isn't it? The implication of Proverbs is that Jesus is indebted to us when we give to the poor. It's the only time in all of scripture that a statement that strong about Jesus being obligated to us. Now that turns my theology upside down. I don't even know how to deal with it, but there it is. Deuteronomy 15, seven through 11, but if there are poor Israelites in your towns when you arrive in the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Instead, be generous and lend them whatever they need. 
Do not be mean-spirited and refuse someone alone because the year of canceling debts is close at hand. If you refuse to make the loan and the needy person cries out to the Lord, you will be considered guilty of sin. Give generously to the poor, not grudgingly, for the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. There will always be some in the land who are poor. That is why I'm commanding you to share freely with the poor and with other Israelites in need. Leviticus 19, 9 through 10 says, when you harvest the crops of your land, I love this text, do not harvest the grain on the edges of the fields. Do not pick up what the harvesters drop. It is the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last branch of grapes from the vines and do not pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you, for I am the Lord your God. There were no wawas back in the times of the Old Testament. You know what people did? Instead of Wawa or whatever else we stop at when we get off the highway when we're traveling, they would go through the fields of the countries that they were journeying through and there was such a commitment to hospitality that people would forgo advancing their standard of living by leaving some of the harvest in the field so that when people were passing through, they could find food that they needed to eat. That's powerful, isn't it? We need that kind of generosity restored in society today and the church should be leading the way and we're not doing it. We're not doing it. Part of this Christmas offering, we started it last year. This is part of us putting in front of our church, make part of your Christmas giving to the poor. How am I providing for my community? Matthew 25, 35 to 36, for I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Verse 40 says, and the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it, to one of the, the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Luke 12, 33 says, sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasures for you in heaven and the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it and no moth can destroy it. He has an expectation of us because everything that he's given to us is his anyways. This is why stewardship and generosity are so interconnected with one another. All of our material possessions, they belong to him. It's like if you've ever house sat for someone, right? It's if, if someone calls you up and, and maybe, maybe you, you did that when you were a young adult. You can think back to a time. I know when I was a young adult and I, I wasn't married and didn't have kids that sometimes people in the church that I attended would call up and say, would you come house sit for us as, when we're away on vacation? When, when you go there, as soon as you get there, you don't have the sense of now all of this is mine because they're not here. Because if you do that, you're not gonna be a popular house sitter for those in your church, Right? You, you recognize that this belongs to other people and I'm just here to take care of it until they come back. That's how we're supposed to view everything that we own. Everything that we have belongs to God and he's got plans and ideas about how he wants to use it and some of it he's given it to us to consume, to enjoy, to have fun and to celebrate. For some of it he's given to us so it'll find its way into our community so that we'll give to people in need. If I'm walking in stewardship and generosity the way God intends, then there will be room in my finances for providing for my community. Am I providing for my church? This is our second question we're working through tonight. Am I providing for my church? I love the story. It says two men were marooned on an island. One man paced back and forth worried and scared while the other man sat back and was sunning himself. 
The first man said to the second man, aren't you afraid that we're about to die? No, said the second man. I make $100,000 a week, and I tithe faithfully to my church every single week. My pastor, he's going to find me. Yeah, that's good, isn't it? The rest of you are going to get that later. You're going to get that later. You're going to be on your way to Chick-fil-A, and you're going to be, oh, yeah, I get it, right? See, because if you come to church on Saturday, you can still go to Chick-fil-A. Just, just working that in. Just working that in. So, so let's, let's just let's talk about tithing for a little bit. I, I want to share with you, we've been t- teaching these principles for years. These are the principles that I've been living by for years. Even before I was in vocational ministry, I've, we've been living by these principles in our own personal lives. I want to share with you four qualifications for something to be a tithe, and I'm going to share with you a, a fifth one that's just a, a part of church, a part of the culture of city life. The four are biblical commands, I would say, and then the, the fifth one is something that we believe and practice here as a church. It's, just, it's part of what we're, we're committed to together. Ethan uh, plays basketball. Come on, some Summit basketball players here tonight. We see you back there. Come on. So he had a he had a devotion that his coach gave to him. Uh, I think it was about a week or so ago. I think he's up there working the camera. And uh, and and so I was sitting at the at the dinner table with him, working through the devotion. And and one of the questions on the on the devotion was was how can you uh, tithe to your team through your time? And so he read that question, and I said, Well, you need to tell him that you can't. You need to say, you, 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 you can't do that because that's not what tithing is about. And so about 45 minutes later, when I was done giving my sermon, right, Ethan's like, I just, I'm just trying to fill out this devotion, Dad. I'm, you know, I'm not trying to get a theology lesson here. But I was saying, you know, this is what happens, that people use the word tithe as a generalization for generosity, but the Bible doesn't use it that way. It's something very specific. So I'm sure the coach was going through those devotions and he's flipping through and he got to that one and said, oh, this must be Ethan's because his dad is a pastor, right? So I'm still working through some basketball issues too because they had a couple of scrimmages today and uh, it was probably the worst home court officiating that I've seen in a long time, right? And I'm that guy in the stand. So at one point, Vanessa looked at me just this morning and said, you have got to be quiet, right? And so I wasn't, because I said, this is a father's responsibility, right? It's a father's responsibility. And it could have been at the part where, you know, everyone else was quiet and the referee was at the scores table trying to sort something out, and I was chanting MVP to the ref because he was representing the home team. And so, so but yeah, it's going to be a long season. It's going to be a long season. So anyway, so getting some stuff off my chest, getting some stuff off my chest. Listen, listen to this, this first one. Listen to this first one. It's got to be a priority. It's got to be a priority. I, I, this is the, my favorite book on the theology of giving. It's called A Blessed Life by Robert Morris. Not a big fan of everything that he teaches, but I'm telling you, this book, it's got some good stuff in it. It says, the first belongs to God. We find this principle all through God's word, and we can, we, we can give God the first of our time. We can give him the first of our finances. The, the tithing is about giving God the first of your money. So you can do other things that are similar to tithing in regards to other things that don't involve money, but that's not what a tithe is. God, I'm going to give you the first, and I'm going to trust that you're going to redeem the rest. This is part of the principle of a tithe when it comes to your money. Put another way, when a firstborn lamb is born in a flock, right, during Old Testament times, it's not possible, it was not possible to know how many more lambs that you might produce. Nevertheless, God didn't say, let your you produce nine lambs first and then give me the next one. No, God says, give me the first one. 
It always requires faith to give the first. That's why so few Christians experience the blessing of tithing. It means giving to God before you see if you're going to have enough. By tithing, it is as if we're saying to God, I recognize you first, I'm putting my you first in my life, and I trust you to take care of the rest of the things in my life. That's why tithing is so important. It's the primary way that we acknowledge that God is first in our lives. The first portion, listen to this, is the redemptive portion. In other words, when the first portion is given to God, the rest is redeemed. This part of tithing is lost on too many people today. Something spiritual and something supernatural happens when I take a 10% of what I have and I give that to the church that I call home, that that, that is the redemptive portion. The theme of redemption is all throughout scripture and it's right in the middle of this idea of our finances is that the 90% that remains is redeemed, protected, and God's blessing is deposited on it because I made the sacrifice. It's got to be a priority. Listen to Proverbs 3, 9 through 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything that you produce. Then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good wine. We've said it so many times in this series. 90% of what I have with God's blessing is always more than 100% of what I have without God's blessing. It has to be a priority. The reason why we teach these principles is that so many people give the right number, but if you don't give it in the right way, you forego the blessing that God wants you to have. See, if, if, you just, if you're just doing, if you're just going through the motions, but you're not following the principles, you still benefit from what the Bible calls reciprocity. The Bible has another principle that's called reaping and sowing, right? That's another sermon for another time. So every time you give, you benefit from reciprocity. But there's another blessing that's beyond reciprocity that is enacted when we step into the biblical principle of tithing. And you don't get to qualify for that until you walk in these qualifications. It has to be a priority. It has to be something that you do every month, not just because you have something left over. It has to be percentage-based, and that percentage is 10. It's not, God doesn't, it's, the word tithe means a tenth part. It doesn't mean a percentage part. If God wanted to just be a percentage part, he would have given it a different name, but he gave it the word tithe, which means a tenth part. Now, you might say, maybe, maybe tithing is new for you. We, we, we've been practicing this our entire Christian lives. and It's, it's the most amazing thing. And, and so you might say, well, I can't go from zero to ten in our finances. And I would say, no, that's okay. But pick a percentage that you can start with. Maybe it's 2% or 3%. Now, it's still just going to be reciprocity for you. It's not going to be tithing. But you've got to start somewhere. If you say, I'm not going to do it at all until I get to 10, guess what? You're never going to get there. You've got to begin to create some momentum, some generosity and stewardship momentum in your life. And at some point, you'll get to 10. And and like a lot of people, you'll you'll cross over 10 and go beyond. Luke 21, 1 through 4, while Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. Then a poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, this poor widow has given more than all the rest of them, for they have given a tiny part of their surplus, but she, being poor as she is, has given everything that she has. It's powerful, isn't it? That's another reason why it's a percentage, because it's the great equalizer. It's not about the amount that's given, it's the percentage that's given. If you've got hangups with churches, 
then you would have definitely had hang-ups with them because Jesus was standing by the offering plate watching what everybody dropped in and giving public commentary to what they gave. Yeah, how many people want to go to that church, right? Where, where the pastor walks behind the offering plate and then stops with a microphone and talks about what just happened, right? Who's going to that church next weekend? This is part of what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that's what we should do, but what he's saying is we should give as if that were going to happen. That something inside of us should say that, 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 that I'm not going to hide behind privacy to not do the things that God expects of me. Crossing the threshold of sacrifice. It might feel like that 10 is it's a big number, and it does feel like a big number when you get started, and I would say it's supposed to feel that way because there's something spiritual about the, a felt sacrifice. If it's easy to do, it's not enough. There's something about dying to self, especially with our finances, that inspires God's heart towards us. It's a principle. It's a principle. Listen to Matthew 23, 23 for people that say that tithing's never really talked about in the New Testament. Oh, it is, and it's not just anywhere. It's Jesus himself. What sorrows await you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, he says, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income, even from your, your herb garden, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice and mercy and faith. Many people treat the New Testament like this first stops there, but it doesn't. Listen to what Jesus goes on to say. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. What's he saying? You can't, as a church, make tithing the most important thing that's in your church. If you do, then you've got some broken priorities. There are things that are more important than tithing, but don't fall under the false thinking and the deception that more important things are permission to displace lesser things. God expects us to walk in the fullness of the revelation that he's given to us out of his word. A lot of people like to say that, well, that's just one verse in the New Testament. And I like to say, well, John 3.16 is just in the Bible one time too, but we don't say that's not important, right? If it makes the cut, it's in there. Even if it's just one verse, God put it in there for a reason. Too many people like to say, well, the, the, the requirement of tithe is such a, Old Testament law, isn't the New Testament about grace and liberty and freedom? Yes, it is. But grace and liberty and freedom were never given to us as permission to live less. The grace and permission and freedom and mercy that we discover through the, the atoning sacrifice of Christ is not supposed to give us permission to say, well, I don't have to do what I'm supposed to do because Jesus already took the consequences. Then that's cheapening the grace I think it's important, too, to acknowledge that when you look through the Old Testament where this principle of tithing, tithing actually predates the Mosaic Law because you see it first mentioned with Abram before his name was changed to Abraham as, as he went to rescue Lot's family. He gave a tenth of all that he had from the plunder of that war to Melchizedek, a priest of Salem. I think all of that's in the Old Testament because I think that's God's way of saying there has to be a way to create resources because every society needs people who are full-time, professional, capable, trained, and equipped spiritual leaders. Every city needs people in them that have the ability without distraction to give 100% of their time to care for the spiritual needs of those communities. And tithing makes that possible. It's a promise. It's a promise. 
These are the four qualifications that you've got to cross this threshold. It's giving without it. It's tithing once you do all four. Listen to Malachi 3.10. It says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do so, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you and I will pour out a blessing so great you will not have enough room to take it in. Try it, put me to the test. Everywhere else in the Bible, testing God is viewed as a sin except this one place. It's interesting, isn't it? Even like that idea that we talked about earlier about how we, sh- we should never view Christ or, or God as being indebted to us, but yet there's one exception. It has to do with money. Do, do you find it curious like I do that so many of the, of the exceptions are connected to money and material possessions? There's a reason for that. I like how personal Malachi 3.10 is. God doesn't say test the principle. He doesn't say, test the rule. He doesn't say, test the knowledge. He says, test me. He says, put me to the test. Your father who who loves you, who has such a great empower. I love that that word that that Sally had and then how Sarah's word, right, tied so well into that. This this idea that we've got to be willing to trust God with a childlike faith and then, right, all of a sudden throughout life we end up with all this brokenness in us that keeps us from trusting and then those things need to die in us so we can experience the resurrection of Christ and step back into that childlike relationship with him. Part of that childlike relationship is trusting that he's going to do what he says. This is this last qualification. It's less of a specific action and speaks to the condition of your heart. That when we give that tithe, something inside of me has got to say, God, I trust that your promises are always yes and amen. This fifth one that we like to share is about the place where your tithe belongs. This is out of 1 Corinthians 16 too. Listen to this. It says, on the first day of each week, you should put aside a portion of the money that you have earned. Don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at once. This is the most specific text that you can find in the New Testament that implies that your tithe should go to your local church. Now, a lot of churches teach that it's a biblical mandate that your tithe should go to your local church. And let me, let me share this statement. We refuse to teach at a degree of specificity that it exceeds the exactness of the text. Let me say that again. We refuse to teach at a degree of specificity that exceeds the exactness of the text. That's how, pe- that's how churches get into trouble. When they try to overstate their case. You, you can't, the New Testament and the Old Testament is full of teaching about the biblical principle of tithing. But when you get to the New Testament, there is not one verse anywhere in the Bible that just says, and you're supposed to give that to your local church. So for us, the culture of city life is that we say it should be given to the church that you call home. Is there a biblical mandate that supports that? No, but we feel like there are biblical principles that encourage it, which means that if you're receiving from something, you should sow back into it. And so is there a biblical mandate that, that, that restricts you from being able to give some of your tithe to a missionary that you support or an organization that you believe in and give some here? No, there's not a biblical mandate for that. But the culture of this house is so where you're receiving. And then, which we're going to get to next, this idea of offerings, is we believe that there is something in the Bible, lots of verses in the Bible, that talk about offerings that are supposed to be above and beyond the tithe. The culture of City Life Church is let's give to the house that's giving to us. Tithing, and then there are offerings. 
I'm not gonna read through these three specific texts, but I'm gonna mention them if you're a note taker. And then every week we put our notes online. You can get them on the podcast page. There's a PDF on there because we cover a lot of textual ground. But offerings, Romans 15, 25 to 26, talks about money that's supposed to be given to missions. That's above and beyond your tithes. Proverbs 28, 27 talks about giving to the poor, especially churches working together. So there's individually, right, you should be giving to the poor through your community, but then you should also get involved through your church when your church collectively begins to reach out to the poor. Like what we do with Port every year. Part of our, our, our offerings that come into the church helps to fund for that and pay for that meal. Exodus 36, three through seven talks about there's times where God calls the church to projects for expansion, for building. If you were a part of us a few years ago when we launched our 2020 vision to raise money to launch the Suffolk campus, that that was part of a, something that we did above and beyond our tithe. Then we raised all the money that we need throughout that year to be able to launch that campus that's thriving there across the water. Faith promise is another huge part of what we do here at City Life, and we're going to be talking about that extensively the first two weeks of February, I think, where we are setting aside this year to be a missions emphasis for us. Faith promise is something that we ask everyone to do every year where you pray and ask God to give you a number, and then you believe by faith. When God gives you that number, you believe by faith that, that he's going to provide it. You don't know where that money's going to come from, but you believe by faith that he's going to provide it. And you make a promise that when that money comes in, or it might come in through a series of circumstances and situations, that you give that money to the Faith Promise Fund. And then all of that money is used here at City Life to fund our missions work. Probably over, over $30,000 tends to come in each year through Faith Promise Giving here at City Life. It's just remarkable. It's amazing. And then people send their stories in, and then we share them when they happen to the church, and, and, and we keep your name out to protect your, your privacy with, with your giving, but, but I remember it was probably, I want to say about four years ago, four or five years ago, when we were in the middle, I'm not going to tell the whole story tonight, but we bought a townhome we first moved here that we discovered was, was built with toxic Chinese drywall, and we had to move out, and we were part of this huge uh, national litigation. It was, it was a mess. Many of you walked through that with us, and our family's never been so cared for through that financial crisis that lasted for years, and, and, and I remember we were right in the middle of it. And we were trying to short sell our, our townhouse, which was built with this toxic Chinese drywall. And everybody was telling us, you're never going to be able to short sell this property. It's just, it's not going to happen. No, no, it's too new. Nobody's, everybody's afraid of it. And, and so I remember that we launched Faith Promise that year, right when we were in the, in the middle of this crisis for us personally as a, as a family. And so I was praying one day for, for our Faith Promise. And, and so the number, right, and I wasn't doing it the way I was telling you to do it because I was giving God the number that I wanted, to, that I had faith for. And I, I remember I remember saying, God, I'm, I'm going to believe you for $1,000 this year, right? We're, we're on the verge of bankruptcy with this huge mess. And so that $1,000 might have been $10,000 to me. And so, and, and so God says, is that all you got faith for? I kid you not. This is the conversation he's having with me. Is that all you have faith for? It's like, no, I don't even have faith for $1,000, God. I have faith for $100 right now, right? I don't have faith for $1,000. And so then, right, I said, what should I have faith for? And God said, you should have faith for $5,000. And I said, all right. I'm supposed to have faith for $5,000. We didn't have $5, but we put $5,000 on that card. In just a few months, that townhouse, it's short sold. Kid you not, short sold. Everybody said, real estate agent, banks, I don't even know how this is happening. Yeah, I know how it was happening, right? Because God keeps his promises. We show up for closing. True story. This is a true story. I've told this story many times here at the church. We show up for closing at a house that we're short selling. 
that, that, that was, was, was probably a, a debt of about $240,000 and, and, the, and, the, and, and the, the investor was buying it for like 70000 All the debt was forgiven. A law had been passed that was expiring, I think, at the end of that year. That the, it used to be that the forgiven debt on a short sale would then be counted as income. That would have put us in bankruptcy by itself. But there was some law that had passed because so many people were upside down in their homes already that, 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 that gave people a pass. So, we didn't, so the money that was forgiven didn't count as income to us. Right? It was just one miracle after another. And then at the closing, they slid a check across the table to us. I kid you not. We're like, what's this? And they said, this is a new federal program that for people like you that find themselves in a home crisis, it's money to help you resettle. And they slid a check across the table for $4,000 to us. I couldn't believe it, right? It was the money that God added to my faith promise. And then he said to me, you still got to come up with the other thousand because that's on you, right? (laughs) Right? Doesn't God have a sense of humor? Right? I mean, it was to the penny. It was $4,000, a thousand less. We couldn't give that money to the church quick enough. Right? I, we, I didn't even want to deposit it in my bank. There was such a sacredness, sacred sense of this money belongs to God. How does stuff like this happen? Because it's not math, it's faith. And this is the journey that we're walking on with God. We're not a church that wants people to be irresponsible. We're not a church that wants people to be foolish. Other churches can teach that kind of stuff. But we do want to be biblical, and we want to walk in obedience to the things that God asks of us. And when we do, I'm telling you, God shows up every time. Every time. I can invite the worship team to come back up. We were with uh, Praxis 9. Praxis 9, a little representing tonight. We're leaving right after the service to drive to Pennsylvania. Come on, Malcolm's getting married this weekend. Come on. Everybody remember Malcolm? Malcolm was so loved here, right? We, we, we pray over people when they're leaving, when God calls them to other places, when military are deployed or, or job changes. And if you've been a part of the church any amount of time, you know we have you stand at some point in the service and we pray over you. It was just a few months ago that uh, Malcolm, it was his last service, he's getting married. They live up in Baltimore now, but she's from Pennsylvania, so the wedding's actually gonna be up there. And, and, uh, but they live in Baltimore. And so it was the first time I was telling Dana, his new wife's parents, we were FaceTiming this week. And and because uh, the rehearsals tonight, we weren't able to be there because of the service. And so we just did a little FaceTime meeting so we wouldn't be strangers at the, at the wedding. So I told them the story that Malcolm is the only person in 10 years that when we announced he was leaving, there was booing coming from the sanctuary, right? Do you remember that? People were like, boo, right? Because Malcolm was one of the most, if you know Malcolm, he was such a caring person. And Dana was here and she was like, I, I'm going to get beat up in the parking lot, right, on the way out. So I'm telling you that story because I was thinking about uh, getting, getting dressed today, and I thought, you know, i got to put together an outfit that I can uh, drive to Pennsylvania and after the service and be comfortable. And, and then I thought, I tell everybody else they should come as they are. I'm going to come as I am tonight in my travel outfit. So, all right, here I am. You guys are a hard crowd tonight, right? Hard crowd. So I'm traveling to Baltimore later tonight, right? No, that's not, not giving it to me. All right, Luke 17, 7 through 10. When a servant comes in from plowing or taking care of sheep, does, the mas- does his master say, come in and eat with me? No, he says, prepare my meal and put it on your apron and serve me while I eat. Then you can eat later. Verse 9 says, and does the master thank the servant for doing 
what he was told to do? Of course not. In the same way, when you obey me, you should say, we are unworthy servants who have simply done our duty. And I think one of the places that we get into trouble with in our lives and our walk and our journey with Christ is, is that when we begin to walk in some of these hard things like we were talking tonight, we, we, get, we get this sense that we deserve some kind of reward. Right? There's some plaque that we should get. There's some acknowledgement that some angel should show up when we're paying bills and, and there should be this great grand celebration. Does God do that for us sometimes? I think he does. I think he does. But the majority of the time, I think what he says to us is you should find your satisfaction in just the fact that you're being obedient. Walking in faithfulness should be enough. Stand with me. Father, I pray for all of us here tonight and just thinking back to that moment where people had their hands raised earlier and for whoever those people were again, God, I pray that you would give them the strength to lay down whatever they need to lay down. And I pray they would experience the resurrection power of Christ in their life. And for all of us tonight who who needed a, a healthy dose of scripture to remind us of the expectations that you have of us over our finances, I would say, Father, find us faithful. We don't want to be the servant that's looking for the pat on the back. We don't want to be the servant that's in it just for the accolades. We don't want to be in the servant that's just doing it for the prize. We want our only prize to be that we're a servant who's serving our master. And may it be, God, that would be enough to satisfy our heart. In Jesus' name, come on, let's worship together.